Hi, and welcome to The Beagle Has Landed. I am your host, Laura Hersher. Today, we're going to talk about reproductive genetics, uh, a topic I don't think we've discussed enough. Reproductive genetics is an area where two uh, seemingly contradictory things are both absolutely true. One is that people are very nervous about the potential of genetic technology, genetic medicine to alter uh, reproduction, to change who we give birth to in the next generation. They're very uncomfortable about it. And the other is that people are embracing this technology with record speed, absolutely um, throwing their arms around testing. It's a credible growth industry. Uh, so admittedly, there are lots of scary stuff um, and the idea that we're going to muck around with the genes of living creatures like Frankenstein or put ourselves in charge of who gets born and bring up the specter of eugenics, history and the movies are very much against us. And yet genetic screening grows more embedded in prenatal care every year. 10 years from its launch, non-invasive prenatal testing and IPT is now big business, big enough to get an expose on the front pages of the New York Times last month. And now a new company has launched with a test that may challenge NIPT, a test that could once again upend the entire field of prenatal genetic testing and alter the decision matrix for prospective parents who choose to test and perhaps for those who choose not to test as well by redefining what it means to protect your children. Joining us today to discuss these important issues is Dr. Ron Wapner. Ron is a clinician and researcher working in obstetrics and gynecology. He was one of the pioneers in reproductive genetics and helped develop chorionic villus sampling and is the director of reproductive genetics at Columbia University. Ron knows the history of prenatal testing. He lived much of the history of prenatal testing. And he's on the scientific advisory board of Luna Genetics, a new company I just referenced. So he is admirably well-placed to tell us something about the future of prenatal testing as well. So to start, I have lots of questions about Luna, but before we go there, first of all, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. So let's do a little review. I have a daughter who's 35. When I got pregnant 35 plus years ago, I was offered screening for spina bifida and Down syndrome. How different was that experience from a woman who got pregnant in 2021? Dramatically different. And how different is that from a woman that got pregnant 60 or 70 years ago? It's different than that too. Um, two things have happened. Number one is our genetic knowledge base has increased, but more importantly, our tools to evaluate the human genome have become increasingly more sophisticated. 20 so, years yeah. ago, the way we screened women who may have been at increased genetic risk, other than those who've had a previous child with a problem, was the knowledge, which was relatively novel at, at that time, that the older the mother was, the greater the chance that she would have a child with an incorrect number of chromosomes. And the one that was most common was that that led to Down syndrome. So with the knowledge that as a woman's age increased, her chances of having a child with Down syndrome increased. And with the addition of a new technology, which at the time was amniocentesis, where you could drain some fluid from around the fetus, and then you could look at the fluid and you could count the chromosomes and you could tell the mom whether or not the baby had Down syndrome or not. So that was the beginning. We had a screening technique that identified mothers at a high risk, and that was age. And we had a test where we could diagnose that, which was amniocentesis. And for most of the individuals listening to this who grew up in a more contemporary time, ultrasound had not even been invented yet. So we were blindly inserting needles into the uterus. That's another example of technology changing the way we do things. Now, as technology has increased, we were able to add additional ways 
to identify women that were an increased risk. And it started by looking for ways that there was, we could identify women who had an increased risk for Down syndrome. We realized that women who were carrying a baby with Down syndrome not only were of an advanced maternal age, but there was a biochemical that was at a lower level in her bloodstream. Next, we understood that there was another biochemical that was a higher level. So we could modify our screening. So we could not just use the age of the mom. And when we use the age of the mom, somewhere between 10 and 15% of all women would have been high enough risk to have an amnio. But the likelihood for any woman that the amnio would reveal a Down syndrome pregnancy was one in 100. As we were able to get additional tests that could refine the risk of the woman, we were able to do two things. We were able to reduce the number of amnios we were doing, and each amnio had a higher risk of having an affected pregnancy. So with the addition of all of this, we were able to come down to maybe one in 25 pregnancies. The next advancement, which brings us to today, was an observation about 15 years ago that floating in the mother's blood, not even in her blood, in her plasma, which is the clear component of the blood, were small pieces of DNA from the fetus. So any pregnant woman, if you draw blood from her, about 10% of her plasma is from the fetus and about 90% is from the mother. Well, the question is, hey, can we look specifically at that that comes from the fetus? The answer was no. So we had to develop techniques where it took into consideration that it was a mixture. And in order to do that, we needed a new test. And that new test was sequencing. And that means that we could take every strand of DNA floating in the mother's circulation, and we could then identify which came from varying chromosomes. And then we developed a test called NIPT or NIPS, non-invasive prenatal screening. With that, we can identify presently 99% without any amnio or anything, pregnancies with Down syndrome. And if it's negative, there's a 99% chance. So that just gives you a sense of what has occurred over the last 40 or 50 years. And the whole purpose of this was to refine who needed a diagnostic test and which pregnancies were doing fine. Right, right. So that's what's what's really interesting here is that all along the screens have really been only designed to to make us do a better job at picking who gets offered an amnio or a CVS, who gets offered invasive testing, which is the one really diagnostic test. Yeah, you make an, an incredibly important differential. And that is all of these tests are screening tests that find out who need the next test, which is called a diagnostic test. The difference is diagnostic tests cost more money. Diagnostic tests may have risks. So you, and you could never do amnios on all 4 million pregnant women in the United States. So for cost and to identify those that needed additional testing, we developed screening. You're absolutely 100% correct. But it has to be realized a screening test is not perfect. And then you mentioned the New York Times article, which was totally misleading because it took what is a screening test, which has false positives and false negatives, and expected it to do the same thing as a diagnostic test, which is not what it was made for, meant for, and can do. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to slow you down a little bit because I think we need a little introduction into the New York Times article and what it said and where it was and and say that as we entered the era of NIPT, I should probably use NIPS because I'd like to emphasize that it's a screen, not a test. That's the S, not a T. But somehow NIPT rolls off the tongue. What can I do? Okay, NIPS. Um, when we introduced that, uh, though technically that test did what it was meant to do, which is to say it was a better screening test that it gave us more 
more accurate results. But in a sense, it was too good a screening test because many people were tempted to take it as a diagnostic test. They hear that number, 99%, 99%, and that doesn't actually mean that the chances that when it comes back to you as high risk, low risk means it's 99% certain to be true all the time. And there was a certain level of confusion about whether or not those results were actually diagnostic that has been pointed out as a problem from the first days of NIPT, right? 100%. Yeah. So with that background, that we've had this problem, a communication problem around the test, which is partly a matter of it being new, I think, to the doctors and to the public. So they get back this test and it sounds convincing. This is, you know, I mean, I didn't take that test 35 years ago. I declined it. And why did I decline it? Because everyone I knew who had tested positive, it turned out to be, they got really scared, they got really nervous, and then it was nothing. Also, 24-year-old me felt that having a baby with Down syndrome was something I could handle. And I felt that I was not going to terminate that pregnancy, but that's really beside the point. The real sort of, I think, emotional impetus was I knew that even if I tested positive on this test, it was far and away, the odds were that it was going to be nothing at 24. It's no longer true, right? So as of 2012, that's off the table. If you test positive, sorry, 2012, 2012, I'm saying when, well, it doesn't, but, but when NIPS comes on the market, okay, suddenly that changes that, right? Like suddenly this idea that it's probably nothing you know, suddenly once you test, you're letting yourself in for really essentially knowing is the way I think people looked at it. Did you, did you feel a big shift in the experience of that testing for women you were working with from earlier? Let me just emphasize a few things you said. 99% doesn't mean that 99% of the women that have a positive test, have a Down syndrome test. And that's where a lot of the confusion has come in because doctors and patients don't understand that the there are three qualities of a test. The sensitivity, what does that mean? That means what percent of affected pregnancies will have a positive test? The specificity is one marker for all the false positive rates. So that's a quality of the test. That doesn't change. But the significance of that result to the patient is dependent on what her preliminary risk was. And when you're dealing with very rare things, even a test with 99% identification and a 1% false positive rate, even a positive test like that doesn't mean the patient has it. For instance, when you were 24, at your risk was relatively low, let's just say one in a thousand. If you had had a positive test, there was less than a 50% chance that you were carrying a Down syndrome pregnancy because it was very, very rare at your age. So the test didn't modify your risk enough to, to make it really high. Alternatively, if I don't quite know how old you are, but let's say a 40-year-old um, woman had the same positive test results, her chance is one in two because she already started with a much higher risk. So screening tests are the number you care about as a patient isn't the sensitivity and the specificity, which are just qualities. That's what is my likelihood that I have an infected pregnancy. And that's where the confusion comes. People have to realize that everybody with a positive test doesn't have the same risk. And when you said, well, all your friends were getting positive tests and had a normal pregnancy, well, that's because they were young. Now, if you had older women that were having the test, most of them with a positive test would have an affected pregnancy. Well, I told you that it was 35 years ago. So if I was pregnant today, we'd be having a whole different conversation and it would involve the Guinness Book of World Records. So let's take that off the table. 
but yeah, so that's, that's it, right? Like the person who comes in and you say to them, okay, you did this test and it came back positive. They want to know only one thing really, is this for real? What are the chances that this is for real? They don't want to say like, explain to me the technicalities of how this works and how does the testing work and how often does it pick up? Like all of that's of great interest to us or to anybody evaluating the technology, but it's not of interest to the patient. Uh, so this test is much better at refining which pregnancies are actually at risk when we're talking about Down syndrome, much, much better. As I said, the age, let's just start with what we started with, a positive age test had a one in a hundred positive predictive value. One in a hundred, somebody over 35 had an affected pregnancy. A positive NIPS, even in a 24-year-old, still would have a 50-50 chance. So you can see how that has dramatically improved. So the increased testing has dramatically decreased the number, increased screening, the number of women that are eligible. So by doing this screening, we're finding lots and lots of women that just don't need anything done. So it's a good screen for Down syndrome in the sense that, the narrow sense that, I'm not commenting on whether or not screening for Down syndrome is good and the ways in which it's ethically complicated and so on, but it's an effective screen in that it is good at identifying pregnancies where the fetus has Down syndrome. Uh, but NIPT is a commercially offered test. It's in a competitive marketplace. And there's been a lot of push to add other aspects of testing to it, some of which I think have been more successful than others. And one of the main other aspects of testing that uh, some companies have tried to add to NIPT is to look for microdeletions, uh, tiny pieces of missing DNA some, uh, that are known to be associated with phenotypic conditions uh, in the child after birth. So I remember talking with you about this many years ago, and I think when NIPT was new, uh, maybe even before microdeletion testing was an option, and you were actually frustrated that because NIPT was so popular, the microdeletion testing that was diagnostic was not being done in many instances when it might have been done because it involved an invasive procedure. Am I remembering that wrong? Of course you are. Absolutely correctly. Oh, okay. So, so you felt that people were stopping at the Down syndrome, the chromosomal testing, because they didn't want to go to the next level of a diagnostic test. That's correct. Yeah. Now, you, 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 if I may, bring up a critical part of prenatal screening and testing. And that is, what should we be testing or screening for? The blood test, NIPS, screens for Down syndrome, which is one in 800. It also screens for two other extra chromosomes, extra chromosome number 18 and extra chromosome number 13. They're like one in a th much less frequent. Extra chromosomes in 18s and 13s, almost always, not always, don't even leave the nursery of the hospital. They have very little long-term consequences. People would argue that many people that have a Down syndrome pregnancy, just like you did when you were 24, said that's something that, you know, that doesn't seem that bad that I would be willing to deal with that. The only reason the screening in this country is for those three things is because we can. And the only reason that we're screening for Down syndrome is because we always used to. And it started, as I said, half a century ago with no tools. And the only that was one of the few genetic diseases we know. Now you It's a very good example of looking for your keys under the under the that's exactly. That's exactly correct. So the real question and we have never in this country had in most countries had a discussion of how we should use our resources and which things we should be screening for. Now, if you, if you look at other disorders, if you look at things that cause severe illnesses or death in children, there's a lot of them that we could be screening for right now 
but we don't, or that we could be diagnosed. And so a woman faced with the option of either NIPT, having the, the blood test, she's only getting tested for trisomy 18, 13, and 21. And as you mentioned, some of the companies add a few little micro deletions. If she had a diagnostic test today, we could do a whole sequence. I'm not suggesting we do that. We could look at every genetic disease that, or at least the majority of the genetic diseases. So when women are deciding and weighing what they want to do, yes, they may make a decision to have NIPT for a limited number of things to avoid a diagnostic test. But if they make the decision to have the diagnostic test, they could identify an entirely larger sphere. And patients, the American College of OBGYN suggests that patients have to be told both options. You could be screened for a limited number of diseases, or you could have a diagnostic test, which is much better and will identify a lot more. The problem has been, and you met, you brought it up, is that NIPT was developed by companies and there's an industry. Billions of dollars are now at risk the, the, by companies. So they push this as this is a great test to do, and you don't need to have that horrible amniocentesis or CVS. Recent literature has demonstrated there's practically no risk, no risk of losing a pregnancy from an amniocentesis or CVS. So patients by should really not ask the question of what do I want to have a test or not? They should ask the question, what genetic information do I want to know about my pregnancy? Some will say nothing. Some will say everything. Most of us are in the middle. That's really the question of, of how we should be doing that. Right. And every time there's been an improvement, and I, I, I'm, I'm speaking quite literally of an improvement in the technology, every time we get better at identifying pregnancies with Down syndrome, there's been a pushback by an emotional reaction by the families, for instance, of people with Down syndrome who feel that, that medical professionals see individuals with Down syndrome as a medical problem and not as people, not as a full human being, and that they're unduly negative, which I think there's a lot of proof to say that that's true. And by the anxiety that, well, you know, in some sense, if you were testing less effectively, you catch some people, some people are going to choose not to have these children. But at the end of the day, Down syndrome is still a thing. The idea that if they're really radically reduce or even eliminate the number of people with Down syndrome, is that going to harm existing folks with Down syndrome? Are we going to be take care of them less, offer them less resources? And so, on? so that's been something that's sort of risen its head up every time there's a quote unquote improvement in the technology. And I think a lot of these things got mixed together in this article, which looked at NIPT in general, but really was focused on the microdeletion testing. Uh, that is correct. Where the positive predictive value, the thing you described so well earlier, the positive predictive value, the chance that it's, that it's, that it's a true positive when you test positive is much lower than it is for Down syndrome. And the authors of that article in a sort of an expose fashion, and by the way, their graphics were beautiful, right? Their graphics explained positive predictive value. I wanted to own them. They were gorgeous, right? Like a great explanation of positive predictive value. So they explained why most, for most people, if they get a positive result on microdeletion testing, fine, NIPT, it's probably not going to turn out to be true when they do diagnostic testing. Um, so what you said, which I totally agree with, is the article therefore said, the test is wrong. It's wrong. It's a bad test, like a bad dog. Bad test, bad test. They said it over and over again. Wrong, 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 wrong. Um, whereas we've talked about this before, like full disclosure, this is a, bringing up a discussion we had last week. It's not a right versus wrong test. No, it, it's a screening test. It's doing exactly what it is supposed to be doing. It is modifying and giving you the most 
accurate number of what your risk is. So then you can make the next step of how of whether you want to have a diagnostic test. And then if you decide you want to have a diagnostic test, what information do you want from the diet? It's just a one piece of information that all women and couples should take into consideration um, deciding how much information they want about their their pregnancy. But there's a reason why the New York Times reporters framed it as right and wrong, which is bad framing for, for that test. And to me, it threw off the whole article because the framing was so bad. But they're picking up on the framing that the companies are. Well, what you got and what they've, they missed, although they did allude to this, the worst thing we're doing is we're giving very poor pre-test counseling. No woman should make the decision of whether she wants a diagnostic test, whether she wants the blood test, what the false screening test, etc., unless she understands them. These concepts that we're talking about now are complicated. We spent our life doing it. So if you said to a woman, you know, we could do a screening test, it could come back positive. If positive, you need to do the next level of test, or you could do a diagnostic test and you could get this much information. If that discussion took place before she decided what she wanted to do, you wouldn't have these misunderstandings at the back end. However, two things occur. No obstetrician has the ability to spend the amount of time that we've already spent describing all this to their patients. The companies that are offering these screening tests are offering little to no information about alternatives. They do describe the test, but they don't say there are other things that that you could do. And don't forget, there's not enough genetic counselors. There's a total limit. There's 4 million births in the United States. There's, I think, a couple thousand genetic counselors. So we, as a as Double that, but okay. Yeah. yeah. It's in the, it's in the- you're the expert on that. We need as a community to decide how we're going to educate our patients before they get into this. This isn't unique for prenatal testing. The only thing about prenatal testing that's unique is it was first. And we're going to be doing screening, and we do for cancer risk. Not everybody that has a positive risk test for cancer is going to get cancer. We're going to do screening tests for high blood pressure, screening tests for diabetes. All of these things are going to be done. So we need to find a way to educate people about what screening means and how it can be adapted to their health. And that's going to have to be done by videos or reading and where it really has to be done in schools. I mean, it's ridiculous that high school students you know, they should know enough genetics and these should be topics that are that are talked uh, about. So there really needs to be pretest education. One of the prob- problems, and you alluded to it, is there's what we call genetic exceptionalism. People think that a genetic test is going to tell the rest of your life. It's going to tell, you know, everything about you. That's ridiculous. Every Every medical test you have done tells us if you have a chest x-ray and it shows that you have emphysema, I can tell you, you got a good chance of winding up 20 or 30 years from now on oxygen. That's all genetic testing is. So we've got to teach it. We've got to teach people that it's not exceptional. It's just an additional piece of information. And then we have to make decisions publicly as a group of what testing we want to do, what screening we want to do and how, and how we want to implement. It cannot be driven by industry. Just because you can do something doesn't mean you should do something. And and I, just while I'm on a bit of a you know soliloquy, I think the insurance companies have to get into the discussion too. Um, and you know the, they will pay for some genetic tests; they won't pay for others. Well, that's ridiculous. It should be you know what we as a as a society think is the appropriate testing to do. Right. What's serious? What's meaningful? And it may not be what we're doing. Like, yeah. the, like what we're doing is, as you said before, it's a historical accident. Uh, I, I, there's no physician on earth that would pick out Down syndrome 
as being like the biggest medical challenge that faces humanity. Nobody, nobody. Um, And so if you were starting from scratch and saying, what should we test for? What do we want to prevent the most? There'd be a thousand things on the list in in front of that. Um, But that is a hundred percent correct with one exception. And the list would have to be what do we think is most important to test for and what can we technically test for? But, and, and you alluded to it, 50 years ago, all we could do was count the chromosomes. Now we can look inside the genes. So our ability to test for lots of different disorders has dramatically increased, but we haven't had the discussion about what we, you know, how should we use this technology, both prenatally and postnatally, but today we're talking about prenatal. Yeah, Uh, we have not had that discussion and it's really, it's really thorny. And at the same time, the testing landscape, just as the, the pace at which things move and change happens is intense. And that's gonna bring me to the, other subject that I wanted to discuss today. So going back, and you had talked earlier about the test being, the NIPD being based on um, little pieces of DNA that are floating in the pregnant person's plasma, where that's alliterative. Um, so you, you're looking not at whole complement of DNA, um, you're looking at little fragments and samples, which have the benefit of turning over rapidly. So they provide a very current snapshot, right? They're, they're not what's happening three weeks ago or three months ago or whatever they're happening right now, because those little fragments don't survive a long time. But before we had NIPT, uh, there were uh, individuals, groups, looking for fetal cells and the idea of the fetal cell uh, as being so much more informative, much more like the diagnostic test that you do where you get fetal cells, but from the bloodstream, I feel like that was the grail a long time before NIPT came on the horizon. Is that right? Um, You are talking to somebody that spent years working on that. And you're, you're, you're exactly correct. The holy grail was get me a sample of, of DNA from the fetus. I don't need a lot. And then I can tell you exactly what's going on. And technology has now changed. We used to think we would need lots and lots of cells. But with some of our new micro technologies, we might need two or three cells from, from, from the fetus. And we can do an an amazing number of genetic tests. So there's a combination of getting the cells and interrogating the cells. We're ready, we can interrogate them. The, The limiting factor is still getting them. And I think we've learned the hard way Uh, the very hard way, that it's not going to be fetal red cells. It's not going to be fetal white cells. They just don't, at least don't appear to get into the maternal circulation as well as one would like. What we're looking for right now and what is close to market is getting fetal placental cells. And they, if, if, if you recall, the blood between the mom let me rephrase this. The mom's blood and fetus's blood never mix. The mom's blood is squirted through a hose, so to speak, through arteries at the placenta. And then the oxygen from the mom's blood goes in. And then the rest of the um, mom's and it goes in and goes to the fetus. And the rest of the mom's blood gets sucked up to the other end of the hose. So the maternal circulation is routinely scratching up against the placenta. So it would make sense that when that happens, some of the fetal cells called trophoblast cells will be washed into the maternal circulation. To be honest, the small pieces of DNA that are floating in the mom's circulation from 
from the fetus. The fetal DNA actually is those trophoblast cells. It's it's coming from the same place. But if you, but if you could capture those trophoblast cells, which I think is what you'll talk about in a minute, you wouldn't have to put together thousands of little pieces and ask questions. You would have one or two cells, which is much easier easier to analyze. Right, right. So if you if you want to look at these thousands of not the millions of tiny pieces you then have and and say what's in them and then you have to do the incredibly difficult job of sorting out the maternal cells from the fetal cells um it's doable i know proof in concept it's been done to put together an entire fetal uh put together an entire fetal genome through mipt but it's incredibly difficult complicated the, the whole cells, as I understand it, there's a uh, maybe maybe I'm seeing three big challenges. One is they're very rare, so getting them is a challenge, right? Uh, two is though they're very rare, they stick around. And if I remember this correctly from my student days, when they tried to find them, sometimes they found them, and they might be from a previous pregnancy. Like it, it was it was hard to be certain that you were getting the right thing, and Trophoblast cells, you have to be a little concerned that the trophoblast isn't representing what's in the fetus exactly, because you can have a situation where there are either, well, either it's what original, what originated is in the trophoblast and the fetus in some sense corrected for something or the other way around. They have changes that happen subsequently. And so you have two different lines of cells. So, so I could see where it's very complicated. And then there's this new company, Luna Genetics, which you're on the board of, which announced last week, I think, that they have a test looking at full fetal cells, um, which is very exciting. So, but can we start by saying those three challenges? How does the test deal with those three challenges and uh, does it have an answer for them? The, the answer is it's still early. And when NIPT came out, there were three questions then too. I think the um, ability to capture trophoblast cells is there. I think you have to put in an additional step that proves that they are fetal cells from this pregnancy. Now, actually, trophoblast cells, unlike fetal cells, don't hang around every pregnancy. They, they disappear. But you have to prove that they're fetal. And then once you do, you have to analyze. Each of those steps can be done. It's going to take time until we answer some of the biologic questions. You alluded to the fact that sometimes cells from the placenta don't always represent what's in the fetus. But when we started doing NIPT, we had no idea about that. And, and that was an issue with that. So with any new test, you not only have to demonstrate that the test works, but you also have to demonstrate the tech, you have to demonstrate the biology. So there will be a transition period um, where the test will probably have limited use until we figure out some questions. And the third thing you have is it's scalable. Again, we're talking about a test that lots and lots of women. Now, as opposed to a screening test like NIPT, in which most women will have it, there will be some people that just don't want that much information um, ab about their pregnancy, probably a lot. So I think that with everything, it's going gonna, it's gonna to take a little while, but the technology is getting there. Um. It's an has an amazing potential to change the landscape. We, we could, we could not today. You could get a blood test from the mom, and within less than a week, you could sequence, know every bit of the of the genome of of the developing pregnancy. Now that sounds great. We could, but you got to take a step back and say, whoa. What are we going to do with that information? And there are some very, very smart people asking, what information should we give a pregnant woman about her pregnancy? Should she know that that kid that she's carrying someday will get Alzheimer's or something like that? So I think there are very many reasonable questions about what information should be given. And there are a lot of people, 
uh, that are suggesting, because there are people that are now starting to sequence babies in the nursery too, that we should release the information as needed. In other words, at birth or in utero, you get information about serious diseases. You get information in which we have treatment for. As you get older, more and more of the genomic information about yourself um, gets, gets released. But those are the kind of questions we as a society are going to have to have to answer. They're all answerable. The answer is going to be, well, it's not going to be the same thing for everybody, but we need a plan and we need a group of options. But sure. you're absolutely right that we conceivably could do that. When we start, we're not going to be sequencing fetuses. That's ridiculous. We're going to be looking just for specific genetic diseases. Uh, yeah, I, I have so many questions. I'm like bursting with questions. And, and I, I get what you're saying. And I feel like we didn't stress enough in here, which you just mentioned, but I just want to stress that one of the differences between this test and the older technology is that it's diagnostic because it's a full cell. And the, the other one is that it's much earlier. Um, so that amnio and CVS can only be done later. This test, according to the promotional materials, they said it could be done as early as eight weeks, but it's better between nine and 11 weeks. I believe that was the press release. Um, but so let's go back to 24-year-old me, pregnant, excited, thrilled, um, deciding not to get any testing uh, for um, the cognitive reasons of I don't think this is a good test. I have, I have experience that suggests it's, it's not going to be meaningful to me for the uh, heart reasons that I felt I could raise and love a child with Down syndrome. That was not something that I, I was going to rule out. Um, then there's a piece of amygdala in there too, right? Just like, ah, needle, I don't want this needle. And so you take that out of the equation and then you do it earlier. Um, I feel like it just is a sea change for those prospective parents because suddenly it's earlier on. You're not as attached. Your conception of yourself as a parent is less developed. You've told fewer people. Um, your commitment to the pregnancy might be different. You're in a very different place, especially if you know about this technology and you're saying to yourself, okay, wow. I'm aware that I'm going to take this test eight weeks in, which is only a month from you when you found out you were pregnant in the first place. I'm aware that I'm going to take this test. And maybe you hold yourself in abeyance in a different way until after you get the results back. I mean, people already often wait until the end of the first trimester to tell people for a whole host of reasons. And now I see a lot of people... You know, my, my kids are at the age where they're having children. And I see a lot of people that used to be like, well, because you have a miscarriage in the first trimester and so you don't want to have to tell people. But also now people are waiting till they get their NIPT test back. Like that's the markering spot now um, for a lot of young individuals. Um, like, oh, well, after we get that results back, then we'll tell everybody. So I feel like it could change how people relate to pregnancy. I think it depends. I, I think it depends who you are. I think there's a lot to do with your cultural background. I think that with NIPT, when they were doing, I'm not even with NIPT, the step before that, with those chemicals that we were looking for, there was a large study in which they did those tests in multiple states around the country. And when they had a positive test in Manhattan, 99% of the patients said, okay, I'm going to have the CVS or the amnia. Same tests, same results, same implications in Utah. Nobody had the diagnostic tests. So I think what that does is it, it points out that many people will use these tests for different reasons. And I think, unfortunately, um, for many historic reasons, um, doing prenatal testing got hooked up and associated with termination of a pregnancy. I, I think that um, with time, people, I mean, people will use the information for entirely different reasons. Some to, to plan for taking care of the child. Some, of course, will make a decision to terminate. But we're also 
you know, we're in the early days now of fetal therapies. There are genetic diseases that we can treat in utero and, and the treatment and the survival is much better if they're treated in, in utero. So, uh, you know, these, these prenatal screening is not used just to make a decision about whether to continue. Having that information has a large number of incredible values and that will change just like prenatal screening and testing changed with time as we develop new technologies and new things that'll change also. I think it's so important and you don't really have to go to Utah. Uh, you right here in New York, you could say upper east side of Manhattan versus the Bronx, completely Perfect. different uh, utilization and decision-making around genetic test results, which is why it's so important what this stuff costs and costs and coverage, right? The access questions. So Luna is debuting its test. What will that test cost to an out-of-pocket customer? A lot, about uh, $3,000. So um, comparable to an invasive test, but nobody pays an diagnostic test. And the lab associated with the diagnostic test. Yeah, just about the same ballpark. But for now, at least, not covered. It's, it will not be covered, but, it, but for the first five to seven years, NIPS or an NIPT wasn't covered. And, and what got it covered wasn't doctors or anybody running to the companies. It was patients who said to their insurance company, this is an important test for me. I want to have this test. And the insurance companies, the pressure from the patients brought that. So again, the evolution of all of these things will involve every um, stakeholder in the community. And that so you you work at Columbia where there's every sort of patient. Is NIPT covered for everybody? Yeah, nowadays it is. Now, micro deletions and smaller things aren't covered. Some of the diagnostic tests aren't covered. So but NIPT is. Mm -hmm. We talked about this with my students yesterday in our afternoon discussion group, and I had they had a couple of questions. I thought they were good questions. One person asked, is the full cell less of a snapshot? Like if you're looking at that full cell, could that be from a month or two earlier in the pregnancy? Or do they also turn over? The cell DNA is the cell DNA, whether it's one cell or the whole organism, they all are representative of each other. Now there's something called mosaicism um, in, in which some individuals have both normal and abnormal cells. Um, but that's pretty rare, but from a normal person, one cell is all you would need. Would prefer to get two or three, um, but it can give you the whole, no, it, it can give you the whole, um, genetic uh, makeup of that individual. And we couldn't find the white paper and we wanted to know, so NIPT has a, I don't say high, but a, a, a real rate of no calls. So a certain percentage of people, they send in results and they're unable to give them a result. From what you've seen, and I don't know how big the test studies have been on Luna, the, this, there's been, this is really new and there's not been a lot of information so far. I'm sure there'll be more to come, but how often are they simply unable to find fetal? 10% of the time. A 10%? 10 to 12. And is that so in a exactly selected... the uh, failed test result for NIPT when it first came out. Now NIPT is, 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 uh, doesn't have as many um, failed tests, but still they have some. Every test right now has some failures. So it'll be about 10 to 12%. Yeah, to start out with. And we spoke earlier and you said something that I found very, very interesting, which is, I, I think, and, and I may have misunderstood it, that you thought that better test would in some sense give people the freedom to, that more people would choose to continue their pregnancies. Do you think that we're headed in that direction do you think we're headed in a direction where the patient population is going to be maybe more thoughtful and uh, less frightened and more likely to continue the pregnancies? Or do you think we're in, headed in a direction 
of people choosing more quickly to go in the direction of termination, which I think is something that a lot of people are afraid of. No, I think that um, I've been absolutely amazed at how smart people are. I mean, our job is to, when they have a test that's positive, is to explain the results, explain the implications, and let them make their own decisions. Nobody makes that as a snap decision. They, They go home, the couple, if there is a couple, talk about it, they make a decision, they change their mind five times, and then they decide what is best for them as the unit. And it can be based on what the phenotype, which is the characteristics of the child will be. It could be what it would do to their family at that time. Many people give a sense that what this would mean 20 or 30 years, it could disrupt an entire family Um, whether or not they have other children, how old they are. This is a very, very, very important decision. And I have been amazed that very few people, you know, everybody's, oh, they'll terminate. No, that's just not the way it works. The people that are having this testing are people that very much want a child. They are smart enough to sit down and understand it. And to be quite frank, uh, my hat off to your profession, um, there's a lot of really good genetic counselors that well that really know how to help people make these decisions. Sure, there's I've seen people that say, "Oh no, 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 no there's something wrong. I'm not going to do it." But that's not that's that's the exception, not the rule. I'm still mad. I'm still mad that the New York Times sort of takeaway point wasn't we need more genetic counseling in the prenatal setting because that would have been a much better answer to what they were finding. Well, as I said, we need to find a better way to teach people stuff. And, you know, people have tried videos, they've tried everything, but, you know, getting people to sit down and take the time to do it is is not inconsequential. So it's got to be, it's got to be quick. Nobody's going to look at something for hours. It's got to be direct, but we'll do it. I I, I mean, without being critical of genetic counselors, the pre-test discussion can't take an hour, which is the normal genetic counseling session. So we have to also understand, and and, and you hit upon it, what do people need to know? Not do you, what do you want to tell them? And when we find that a number of genetic counselors sit down, particularly youngins, and tell the patient everything about the test, all the technical attributes and everything, nobody needs to know that. They need to know they're getting a test to see if the pregnancy has a genetic disease. Do you want it or not? Um, What we need to understand is exactly what patients need to know before the test, what the best way to get them the information. Then the significant genetic counseling has to take place after they get a positive result. That's where the skill of the genetic counselor is most valuable. So we really have to ask additional questions. How do we educate? Because pretest is not counseling. Pretest is education. And how, how, how do we apply this to lots and lots of people? And as I said before, if the patients have, and if people have a better understanding of basic genetics, this becomes easier and easier, but that'll take time. Yeah, I think, I think that there's some sort of societal wisdom piece that will get better. I mean, when you were talking about, we test for susceptibility for heart disease or whatever um, earlier, people test cholesterol all the time. And they're concerned when their test comes back high, but they also know it doesn't mean they're going to die tomorrow. Um, and there's things they can do. They have, a, they have a cultural wisdom around that test, but they have some sense of what it means and, and what it does. Genetic exceptionalism. If you yeah, they do not feel that way. Cholesterol, they're going to have a heart attack. Okay, it's my class. So your genetic test says you're going to have, then they freak. And I just think that it's just that people need to get, and, and, and you talked about it, a genetic wisdom. Yeah, I, I think that part will happen. I, I worry that we continue, you know, it, it, it's, it's not just that there isn't the education, which there is not, um, but also that what we can do, what we throw at them changes every year, it feels like too. And for instance, my last question about Luna, because I'm sort of obsessed with this company right now, right now on the website, it says, they will be testing for chromosomal abnormalities, but not single gene conditions. I feel that the entire 
big piece of the value of being able to obtain fetal cells is being able to go after things like single gene conditions, being able to go after all the genetics of the fetal genome. So is that an early days piece? I mean, why, why are they not? By the age of 20, um, 5% or one in 20 individuals will be diagnosed as having a genetic disease. Genetic diseases are common. Um, and I think there's no question. And actually, um, I was on the phone with Luna this morning and we had this exact discussion. That's the next logical step. Probably if, if NIPT and all this hadn't come in, that probably logically should have been the first step. One to two percent of uh, I mean, couples have uh, are carriers uh, or have the are both carriers of a genetic disease. Three percent of all pregnancies will have a spontaneous mutation. That's three to five percent, maybe six percent will have some genetic abnormality that would not be identified on NIPT. And compare that to Down syndrome, which in the general population is one in eight hundred. Why are we testing for a one in 800 disease when we have something else we could test for that's five to 7%? It's, it's just because when the decisions have been made historically and there hasn't been you know, the, the ability for all of us to sit down in Great Britain where they have a different health system, they've already made these decisions and they've already have all, all of this um, planned out. We have not done that. Well, my Canadian students point out that it's not routine to be able to get NIPT in Canada, where they also have a national health insurance. So, yeah, the decisions um, when you're making them for society are quite different than when they're put in the hands of individuals. But I, I just want to ask, what did you mean by when you said, Luna, that would have maybe been the first thing, if not for NIPT? Do you mean that they felt they needed to be competitive with NIPT? Yeah, they wanted to see if they could do what's presently done, which is a very reasonable thought, um, although they're doing better with the micro deletions and things. Um, but nobody has tested the desire for the population to have these single genes tested for. I think you and I, who do this every day, understand how important this is, um, but not everybody does. So it's, it's just going to take time. Uh, I could give you a measure of the the interest in single gene testing. Um, doing a study right now, looking at the increase of PGTM, so that is IVF level testing of embryos uh, for single gene conditions. And since 2013, I was looking at a single center, but a big center, the uptick in the use of that type of testing as opposed to other types of pre-implantation testing. But specifically this situation where a couple comes in and says, we're concerned about X, can you test for X? Uh, so that they know about X, you know, they're not walking in there and they're saying, I mean, we don't have the technology now. They're not walking in there and saying, we're concerned about heart disease. They're like walking in there and saying, we know in our family, there's this gene. Can we test for this gene? Cause we only want to use the embryos that don't have it. That has gone up thousands of percents in the last eight years. It's amazing. So I think the appetite for it is there. And it's not a mystery where it comes from. The same thousands of percents increase in expanded carrier screening. People are, and also in cancer susceptibility testing, heart disease susceptibility testing. People are coming to reproduction with that information in their pocket which they weren't 10 years ago. I think that you're hundred percent correct. And um, I think that's the fourth time I've said that. Um, I, I'd like to admit when I'm wrong. And when PGT came along, PGTM, I said, oh, that'll never amount to anything. It's not going to need to be used very often. And I think your point is, is absolutely well taken that it's really becoming the uh, a, a, a very common. But I, I think that for people listening, they need to understand that in order to do this, you have to have in vitro fertilization, you have to have eggs captured, you have to have the eggs tested, and it's about twenty to $30,000 to do that. And when people get mad at us in genetics, because these tools are only being applied to rich people, these are the kind of things that bother them a lot. If you're rich, you could have the IVF, 
you could have the um, testing and you could only have normal embryos inserted. Not any, very few people can do that. Um, the, the second thing is we need a limit to what we're willing to do. And there's a doctor who has an office very close to us who does IVF and he does something called um, basically polygenic risk scoring where he doesn't diagnose diseases, but there are certain genetic symbols. Maybe this kid's got a little signal to be a little taller than the others. This one's going to be um, a little smarter. And he does polygenic risk scoring on each of the embryos. And then he presents the scores to the mom. And he says, well, do you want the athlete or do you want the smart kid or do you want the tall kid? Oh, Ron, please, I have to stop you because you know we can't do that. You know we can't do that between sibling embryos. And this is like a whole other podcast, which I would be very delighted to have and have written on this subject. But yeah, that is what they're selling. That's not what we do. The Reproductive Endocrinology Society, when they found out, they said this absolutely should not be done. Absolutely positively. But I also can tell you between the time you offered it and, and it became, you know, kind of, suggested you don't do it. There were lots of patients own website own, you know, people were willing to do that. It's, uh, but I couldn't agree with you. It's, it's repugnant. You talked about eugenics. So that's what people are scared about. And we, as the genetics community can't, there's gotta be a line and we have to protect it and, 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 and have thoughtful discussions about what we do. Here's what I think. And I, I think this is like sort of a wrapping up idea um been saying this for years i've been teaching on this subject for 20 years and i've been saying basically for 20 for 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 all of these years genetics has i mean as a field we've deferred to to patients for many reasons understanding that these are ethically complicated decisions and wanting to to put the decision in the hands of the patient for many good solid reasons uh, but among them in the reproductive setting there's We've been able to rely on the fact that by the time we get diagnostic information to the parents about, let's say, Down syndrome, they are well into that pregnancy. And as you said very eloquently, nobody's making a facile decision at that point in time. People are making heartfelt, serious, thoughtful decisions about what they can live with and what is going to destroy them or what they can handle and what they can embrace. And we honestly have, by deferring it to them, sort of used the protection of the fact that, yes, every once in a while, you might have a prospective parent who makes a not thoughtful decision, but it's going to be the exception, right? And not the rule. As a rule, you're going to get really thoughtful things. But when you, the farther you move it back, and yes, the most extreme is testing embryos, so the farther you move it back, the more it brings into play that some parents are going to be interested in be pushing the barriers of what we should be doing, whether it's ethically or what we can do well. Uh, are they going to be subject to being sold something commercially? Um, and, I, and I think this is the emphasis of everything that you've been saying throughout this interview, which is the time is coming where we can't simply rely on, oh, well, people are so attached to their pregnancies, no one will make a no one will make a casual decision. People will make the right decision. We're, instead, we're going to have to start talking about what do we test for and what don't we test for? Because if we test for everything, we're going to be in a very uncomfortable territory. I, yes. I five times? Are we going to get five agreements? Let me say that Ron and I have not always agreed on everything. So I didn't say 100% this time, but I did say I, I agree. And, you know, in, in, in summing it up, it's not you. It's not I. It's not the medical profession. It's all of us that have to be willing to have these discussions. And, and they should start as discussions because we all feel differently. And then the discussions have to lead into how are we going to manage this new technology and, and, and how's it going to be helpful? This isn't new. New technology comes along uh, all the time. And then we have to decide, do we make mistakes? Of course we make mistakes. Uh, 
But the, the more thoughtful we are before we make the mistakes, the, the better off we're going to we're, we're going to be. And, and we also need to, you know, I mean, I'm, one of the things that drives me totally crazy is I have discussions like this with genetic counselors, with geneticists. They think they know exactly the right answers to all these questions. And I have to go back and remind them we live in a balloon and or a bubble. We live in a bubble. We understand this. We think this is the right thing to do with this technology. But we got to get out of our bubble and talk to a lot of other people. And a lot of other people need to at least respect that we have an opinion too. There, there's, there's no right and wrong, uh, but there's got to be some thoughtful um, discussion about how to apply it. So um, interesting times. Interesting times. Can't sum it up better than that. <laughs> and I have to stop because I know we're running out of time. And honestly, I could talk to you forever. Um, yeah. Yes. Well, thank you. This is Ron, is Ron is like getting up and leaving. I've never had, he's getting up and leaving. So I really need to do my spiel. Okay, everybody, thank you so much for joining us, Ron. Thank you. Go to the website, follow me on Twitter, all that good stuff. Everybody stay healthy out there. And if anybody have any comments or suggestions, send them forth.